Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 145. I'm sorry, that's not true. Psalm 143. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 143, the psalm that uh, Derek read earlier. And we are going through this uh, Christmas series, Hope in the Psalms. And we mentioned this last week, but one of the things we need to remember as we are going through this is all these psalms are written a long time before the Messiah would come. And this time of year being Christmas, this is when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that the Messiah had come to earth, that the Savior had arrived. But the entire Old Testament is written waiting for the Savior, waiting for the Messiah. And, and sometimes it's easy to forget that because now we're 2,000 years on the other side. Uh, we're 2,000 years and sometimes we tend to forget history. When you're looking forward to something, you remember every single day. Uh, especially at this time of year, uh, children all of a sudden become really good at keeping track of a calendar. I mean, they know every day. They know how many days away they are. Uh, they know what they are supposed to get that day. Um, the 12 days of Christmas thing isn't quite mathematically correct in our house yet, but we're working on it. But all of a sudden, there's this anticipation of what is coming. And it's this waiting that feels like it is taking forever. And then the day hits or that time comes, and when you get on the other side of it, all of a sudden it's not as much of a hurry. There isn't that feeling, that anticipation. And I, I feel like for some of us, myself included, sometimes we forget what it was like to wait for the Messiah, to wait for the Savior, and we can just not really think about it. We don't spend much time uh, us thanking God for what He has done uh, every day of our lives by sending Jesus Christ to earth. And so uh, Psalm 143 that we'll be in, this is a psalm of David. Last week, uh, they don't know who the author was of that psalm, but this is a psalm of David. Um, and one of the things we'll be talking about as we go through is as we read through these psalms, we have a chance to be able to stop and see what is God giving us. In these psalms, God is, there's something, there's this gift that God has given us, continues to give us, and so as we go through the series, we'll stop every week and look at what has God given us, uh, but also to constantly remember that hope that we now have in the Messiah. Uh, this is also, again, we talked last week about this being a uh, last week and this week's psalms are penitential psalms, meaning that this is a psalm where the writer understands that they have, done, they have sinned against God. There is something that they have done wrong. We don't always know what it was, but there's something that they're doing, and it starts off with this confession to God, that there is something that they've done wrong that they are now seeking God's mercy and His forgiveness from. Uh, so it starts off, as we read through it, it starts off rough. If you heard Derek reading it earlier, like most of these psalms start off uh, with somebody who is crushed and beaten down, but then they end in joy and they end in hope. And so that's what I hope to do as we go through this message this evening. So join with me in Psalm 143, and we'll read through it together. It'll also be on the screen uh, behind me. David writes, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. 
I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will be like those who go down to the pit. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your namesake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. So right away, it starts off very similar to where we were last week. It is somebody, in this case, it is David. He understands that there is a sin that he has committed. There is something wrong that he has done. And he is very clearly crying out for mercy. So the first thing that we see here is the result of sin. Uh, The result of sin here in verses 1 through 4. And I want to talk a little bit about this because it's continually mentioned, especially in these Psalms where we're confessing our sin to God. And last week we see the same thing. There was a sin that took place and there was a calling out of an understanding. And we asked the question, how do we handle our sin? Uh, Because a lot of us, somewhat kidding around but also somewhat serious, we have this unbelievable ability to self-justify anything we've done wrong. Like it makes sense to us why we have sinned. Uh, And in some cases we think we're special. So we can sin and it's when other people do that, that's when it's bad. Like, those are things God written, that's for other people, not for me. Um, We ask the question, how do we look at our own sin? Uh, It's easy to look at somebody else's sin, as the saying goes, I wish I hated my sin as much as I hate yours. But it's hard to look at our own sin, and so at some point we have to be confronted with it. And so, ultimately, the result of sin is death. Ultimately, the result of sinning against God is an eternity forever being separated from God. And so that, we know, is the end result of sin. But what about in the here and now or or right after we have sinned? Now, we've seen instances where people sin and it causes their death right away. But what about when we sin and then we continue on with life? But We see going back to Genesis where Satan is tempting Adam and Eve and they decide that, yes, this fruit does look good. It is pleasing to the eye. It will give me special powers. And they take a bite and instantaneously they regret it. And that's oftentimes how sin looks to us, is it looks good, it looks fine. Uh, A lot of times we'll even stop and consider, can I get away with this? And then we do it, and almost right away, there's a change. Uh, And that change a lot of times is conviction. So sin results in conviction. conviction. Sin always looks good right up until we do it, and then right afterwards we wish we didn't. So sin results in conviction, uh, which hopefully should lead to repentance. That conviction, uh, if we know God, if we have entered into that relationship with Him where we have made Jesus the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives, the Holy Spirit now dwells within us and He wants to point out to us what we are doing that is wrong. And that is the feeling of conviction. And you can have that feeling even though nobody else knows that you sinned, you know. The Holy Spirit is bringing it to your attention and that should ultimately lead to repentance. Why? Well, he writes about this. He says, in your faithfulness and righteousness come to my relief. 
Uh, sin always looks good until right afterwards. He knows uh, that there is, then he goes, do not bring your servant into judgment. He knows that all sins will be judged. That for everything that is done, there will be a judgment coming. And so he is calling out to God in this way. Uh, he's calling out because he knows that there is a result to sin. And so he's crying for mercy. He knows that God is just. But that conviction has taken a hold of him, and now he is crying out for forgiveness. Which I'm so thankful if you're here this evening. If you have never entered into that relationship with God, we'll see as we walk through what God has provided through his son. But the psalmist says he is faithful and he is righteous. But now he's saying, I know you're faithful and you're righteous and you judge, but please show me mercy. Then in verse uh, 3, he goes on and he talks about the enemy pursues me. Now David was probably an expert on what it is to be pursued by an enemy. Uh, he spent the majority of his life having people who wanted to kill him for one reason or another. He always had an enemy, whether it was Goliath. Uh, we can even go further back and realize like, not even his father looked on him all that great. Uh, when Samuel came to his father and said, one of your sons is going to be king, the father goes and gets, I think, six of his sons and not David. And then Samuel looks at all of his sons and says, I don't, uh, none of these are making sense. Do you have another son? He goes, I mean, yeah. One of the worst dad moments, right? Like, well, not that guy. Like, he's out watching the sheep. Well, bring him here. So he already isn't thought of by his father, it seems, all that greatly. Then he goes off to visit his brothers at war, and he fights Goliath, who wanted to kill him, not the guy that you want upset at you. Uh, then he, his whole life, then he goes and he entertains Saul, and then Saul wants to kill him. And as he's playing music trying to calm Saul's spirit down, Saul throws a spear at him trying to kill him. And basically the rest of his life there is always somebody pursuing him trying to kill him. His own family, his own sons, uh, raising armies to fight against him. I mean, his life is constantly one, knowing what it is to be pursued by an enemy. The enemy pursues me. He understood what that was like. But we also know that Satan is our enemy, that Satan pursues after you. Ephesians 6 tells us that we are constantly embattled in the spiritual warfare where there is this powerful enemy that wants to cause us to fail constantly. So we are warned that our sin, that conviction, should cause us to repent because those attacks are only going to get more severe and more targeted directly at us. But then when we come to verse 4, uh, I just find it incredibly encouraging. He says in verse 4, it doesn't come across right away as it's encouraging, he says, so my spirit grows faint within me, my heart within me is dismayed. David is feeling awful. He knows he has sinned, he knows he needs forgiveness, He's throwing it out there, but he has weighing down on him in such a very rough, rough way. Now, the reason I find this encouraging is because now we can have the relationship with the Messiah that came. And the Messiah didn't come like everybody thought. He didn't come as this powerful entity and, and physically destroyed and wiped out all of the physical enemies that Israel had at the time. He, he came as a baby, born in a stable, in a manger, 
the God of all the universe, that everything was created for him, by him, and through him, is now completely reliant upon two of his own creations to take care of him as a baby. But it wasn't just that. In, in Matthew chapter 26, we, and in verse 37, we see Jesus, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, uh, and Jesus uh, says to them, uh, says he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus knew what was waiting for him the next day, that he would be captured, or that night, that he would be captured and beaten and punished for your sin, for my sin. He knew that he was going to endure the cross, and he knew that when he took his sins on his shoulders, that the first time in eternity, that relationship between him and his father would be separated. It wasn't his sin, he remained perfect, but he understood what it was to be sorrowful and troubled. That just as how David is feeling this uh, worn down and this beat down, Jesus experienced those with us. Hebrews 4.15 says, um, For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So we have Jesus, who in Matthew 4 describes what it was to be tempted by Satan face to face and still be able to withstand temptation, but he is able to empathize with us as we go through. To me, that's encouraging that we worship a God who loves us and cares for us and has endured what we go through on a daily basis, that he is this personal, intimate, loving God. So we see this area of confession, and it moves into verses 5 and 6. Read with me. It says, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. So what do we do when we're feeling like we are trapped in a sin, we are trapped in our sin, and we just cannot get out? What do we do? The answer is we meditate on God's Word. We meditate on who He is, spending time meditating on Him. David is feeling down, and so where does he turn his attention to? And we see this throughout all the Psalms. Psalm 119, he says, I meditate on your precepts. It's a repeated thing throughout the Psalms. Uh, I love Psalm 34, verse 8. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. One thing I love doing is tasting food as often as I possibly can. And so I love the, the picture here in, that, in Psalm uh, 30 uh, where David says, taste and see that the Lord is, is good because it's this picture of eating. And I don't know if you've ever had, like you get a steak, let's say. And I'm sorry for the vegetarians and vegans here this evening. You get a steak or broccoli piece and it's just cooked excellently. And you take that first big bite and it is just perfect. It is just unbelievably well done. One of the best steaks I've ever had, and I've had some great steaks at great restaurants. I'm not taking anything away from them. My brother Nate is a chef, and he uh, will get an entire beef tenderloin and prep the whole thing, and he slow cooks it, and then, and then these little fillets come out, and they are just unbelievably good. Now everyone is starving and checking their clock to see what time they can get out of here. So you would eat this steak, and although it was just a small fillet, the first one, the other five I would eat would grow, but that first bite, you can't take it. And then as I would go through, the bite gets smaller and smaller, and you chew it a little bit more slowly, and you want to taste everything that's in that piece of steak or broccoli. 
And that's, I think, the picture that we see with, G, uh, with David telling us to meditate, taste and see. Take God's word, take God's promises, take God's character, and slowly chew them. Allow what he is and who he is and what he promises to satisfy us as an incredible piece of food would satisfy our hunger. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Meditate on, his, uh, meditate on who he is. Uh, when we're feeling beat down, when we're feeling pursued by the enemy, when we feel like we just can't go on any further, stop. Psalm 46.10. Randy reminds me of this almost every time we talk. Stop. It says, peace, be still, and know that he is good. When we're feeling like the, the weight of the world on us, stop and meditate on who he is. We have to make God the desire of our heart. Uh, it says, we, I thirst for you like a parched land. Uh, if we go to Jesus in the Beatitudes in, in Matthew 5 or 6, he's saying, uh, blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Again, that picture of food, now that you're all hungry, wanting steak or broccoli, you want this idea of, I need this. I need this food. And that should be the desire of our heart, especially when we are in sin. The last thing we want to do, think of Adam and Eve, they run and they hide. They try to hide themselves from God. And that's what we try to do in our sin. We run. We don't want to be near God's people. We don't want to be in the presence of God. But David is saying, no, do the opposite. Stop. Think about who God is. Think about his character. Think about his promises and what he's promised you. Satan wants you to doubt yourself. He wants you to think you can never get out of this. He wants you to think you're trapped in a pit, that there's no escape. But what does God do? God fulfills his promises. When we are feeling beat down, we can stop and meditate and think about who he is, and he will rescue us. Last week we talked about uh, David constantly using the term of I'm stuck in a pit or I'm basically in quicksand. There is no hope for me. Come quickly to your servant because I can't get out. I don't know about you. I have felt that on many occasions where you're just patiently waiting to get out of a situation that a lot of times your own sin has put you in. So how do we make that the desire of our heart like we would hunger after water or hunger after food and thirst for water? And then we, as he comes out of this uh, transition from going from feeling down, now what? Now how do I move forward in this? Starting in verse 7. He says, answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. I'm going to stop there just for a second. I had somebody tell me that a lot of times our approach to God is like that of a police officer. Uh, there's been many times... Uh, I had a job, I had this weird job for six months where I literally traveled all over the United States and we had to drive everywhere. And I remember um, we were in Oregon and we had to drive around the whole state in just a couple days. And it was night and we were driving, we had rental cars and we were running out of gas and we hadn't seen anything in a long time. We were up uh, close to, I can't remember which mountain it was, and it had started snowing for the first time that year, I think it was in October that year, and none of us had cell phone service. Uh, there was, no, this was 2000 end of 2002. None of us had cell phone service, and uh, we were going to run out of gas. And I remember thinking of all the times I wanted to see a police officer. It was right then and there. In the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, Oregon, none of us were from Oregon. We were all from the East Coast. Uh, we didn't want to be trapped there. So I was like, man, I hope we can find a police officer. Now, we ended up making it to a gas station. We were fine. 
But then there's been even more times where I'm driving down the road, going a comfortable rate of speed for myself. Uh, we won't get into details. And there, all of a sudden, you see a police officer. And my feeling towards that police officer had nothing to do with that police officer. It was everything about what I was doing. If I'm lost in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere in Oregon, I want to see a police officer. If I'm going blah, 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 miles per hour down the road, and I see a police officer, I don't want to see him. I no longer need him. I'm all good. We are all set here. But a lot of times, that's our approach to God. When we are in dire need of something, man, do we run to God. The saying, there's no atheists in the foxholes. When we are in dire need, we run to God. But when we are enjoying life, doing what we want to do, we don't need him. In fact, it's better if he doesn't see what we're doing. And so I, when he says, answer me quickly, Lord, it's funny because uh, we know God is gracious. And when it's his grace and his mercy that we desire, it's bring it to me quick. When it's his judgment and anger, we're like, take your time. God, remember you are slow to anger. That's a, that's a verse in the Bible. Uh, and so I think it's interesting. He's hurting here and he's calling out, answer me quickly, Lord. Not with a judgment. Show me mercy there, but answer me quickly so that I know I'm forgiven and that I can have this relationship back where it needs to be with you. Let's continue on. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me or I will be like those who go down to the pit. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. I'll stop there really quick. Level ground is unbelievably important. And if you know anything about Israel... The terrain there is very mountainous, hilly, um, deserty, cliffs, rocks, stones, and walking in the evening is unbelievably treacherous, especially in this time where not everybody carried a flashlight. That was also their phone for, uh, form of communication. And so he's saying, walk me on level ground. What he's saying there is, I don't want to trip and stumble. So when we come back to that verse, keep that in the back of your mind. But what we see here in verses 7 to 10 is now he is uh, meditating on God's Word. When we meditate on who God is, we meditate on His Word, remember who He is, that should drive us to a place of seeking God's will. That should drive us to a place of seeking the will of God uh, as, as His children, of those who, who know Him. Uh, Romans 8.14 says, uh, it, my, my children will listen to my spirit, or my spirit will guide those who know me. Uh, Galatians 5.18, just before he goes into uh, the difference between people that f are in the flesh and what they do, and the people that are in the spirit and what they do, he again reminds them, my children follow my spirit. My spirit is guiding them. Uh, those are my words, not the actual translation of those verses. So he's pleading for quickness. Because now he's realized, I believe, that now he needs to follow after the will of God. That he needs to chase after God. That when we, when we are thirsting for him like a parched land, now it should start to change our everyday behaviors after we follow through him. If that, uh, going back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we talk about not being uh, conformed to the world, but rather being transformed, starting in our spirit and going outwards. As we are being transformed by his spirit, we will now seek after what he has for us. And in this, we see three different 
uh, phrases in this passage. The first one at the end of verse 8, he says, show me the way I should go. Uh, When we want to know how we seek after God's will, uh, we need to be shown the way I should go. Uh, At this time, they would have had God's word in scrolls, and so we have this unbelievable ability to have God's word everywhere we go, that we can go and, and seek God out, but oftentimes that's not where we go first. Oftentimes we're not saying, show me the way I should go. We are asking other people, hey, show me the way I should go, which is fine if they're wise counselors. But number one is, show me the way I should go. The second, in the beginning of verse 10, he then prays, teach me to do your will. Teach me to do your will. And then at the end of verse 10, he says, and may your good spirit lead me. Show me, teach me, lead me. All of us have somebody that is doing these things in our life. There is some entity that are doing these things in our life. A lot of times we rely on ourself. And so we are, in, my, in our minds, if you're like me, the smartest man alive. So I don't need that much help because I am crushing it. So we can rely on ourselves or we can rely on other people. We rely on possibly what other people think about us, and that's what controls our decisions and how we operate. But here, when he's seeking out God's will for his life, he prays, show me the way I should go. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, he says, help me to obey your will as the angels obey your will in heaven. Help me to obey immediately. Show me the way I should go. Teach me to do your will. He teaches us through his word, and then may your good spirit lead me. Through the Holy Spirit, he will guide us. Please understand this isn't a one-time thing. This is a daily thing for the rest of our lives. Uh, This is why we need to have that desire for God's Word, that we need to have that desire to pursue Him and desire Him above everything else in our lives. Uh, When we wonder what does God have for us, we start here. We start with the small things in life and we follow after Him. And then we finish in verse 11 through 12. David writes, For your namesake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. So again, we start off with David, and he's in sin, and he's needing help, and he feels beat down, and he feels like he's being pursued by his enemies. And then we finish here, and this is where I want to stop and look at uh, three of the gifts that we see. And it's Christmas season, and so we weren't talking about gifts. Here is what God is giving to us. The first thing that he reminds us within these verses is that God is faithful. God is faithful. And I love in verse 11, he says, For your name's sake, Lord. Uh, in American culture uh, today, we don't have the importance of a family name. Uh, we're a very individualistic society uh, culturally. So if my brother does something, that's on him. We might have the same last name, but that is not me, right? He did that. I'm not at fault. Uh, in time past, it was your family name meant so much. I, uh, I remember reading the story as a young kid of John Quincy Adams, who I believe when he was only eight or nine years old uh, and the Revolutionary War was starting, his father, John Adams, sent him and entrusted him to go give information about something to do with uh, the British. 
And this boy comes running into his shop and he's saying, the British blah, 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 is filling them in. And a bunch of the men started laughing because they thought this little boy had no clue what he was doing or saying, and they were reviewing it as a joke or just a little kid trying to get a rise out of some adults. And one man said, hey, that's John Adams' son. John Adams doesn't lie, and I know his son wouldn't either. So because of his father's reputation, because of that last name, the entire war changed at that point because these men, because of who his father was, were willing to listen. And so going further back now in Bible, how much more does God's name mean? Oftentimes we see his name mentioned uh, in the Old Testament. It says God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that was very specific because the, uh, the, the Jewish nation, they would have remembered those. All of those stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've been told since, they, since before they were born of the God that they worshipped and the things that they did because they followed after God. So it wasn't just a phrase, it was a constant reminder. And as you look at the Jewish culture, uh, there's all these constant reminders pointing them to who God was. The way that they dressed, the way that they wore their hair, uh, what was nailed on their doorpost, uh, what was wrapped around their hands and Scripture put on their forehead and on their face. Everything was a constant reminder to them of who God was and the different names of God. And again, in English, we lose that. We say God, Lord. We have unbelievably a minimal amount of words for God. But in the Jewish, every single aspect of God, his characteristics all had different names. We've talked about last week Jehovah um, and what that means, the great I am and Elohim and uh, Jehovah Jireh. There are so many different names that they would use to describe God that his name was great. And so here is David saying, God, I know you're faithful because that is your name. Why did he know his name so well? Because the amount of time he spent meditating on the different attributes and characteristics and names of God. Just God, you are faithful. God is faithful. And out of that faithfulness here are now three things that Jesus accomplished for us. These are the gifts of God. We talk about Jesus being the gift of God, but that is so much bigger, bigger and broader than we could imagine. And so as we go through this series for a couple of weeks, we're just going to try to point this out every week. So tonight there's three things I want to point out. That because Jesus came to earth as a baby, because he lived a perfect life, and because he took the punishment that was intended for you and for me when he took our sins upon his shoulders and took them to the grave and defeated death, here is now what we can experience. Number one, he preserves life. God preserves life. For your namesake, Lord, preserve my life. David understood who he was, and he understood who God was. He understood that the only ability that we have to have our life preserved is in Jesus Christ. Uh, Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Again, this is this beautiful promise. This isn't a one-time thing. This is a continual work. Those of you that know me and know me well are so thankful that it is a continual work, that I'm not done, I have a long way to go. And the same thing for every single one of us. When we know Christ, it is a continual work being done in our life. Uh, <laughs> to say the phrase, like, if you think I'm bad now, you should have seen me 15 years ago. Like, it's taken God 15 years to get me to this point. There's still a long way to go. Why? Because he is continually working in my life as he preserves my life as only that he can 
do. The second thing that we see, and it's mentioned again in the very beginning, he says, God, you are righteous. And now he says it again, in your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. God has given us through his son, his righteousness. This causes me to pause every time I think about it, because I know me very well. I know the things I've done. I I know uh, what I battle with every single day. And now we're talking about a perfect, holy God and His righteousness that I can have because of what Jesus did on the cross for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we were just talking about this a couple weeks ago. It says, God made Him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That doesn't make any earthly sense. That a human being who is born, and all I did from the moment I took my first breath was basically sin against God. Every human being does nothing but sin against their very creator, a holy God, and his response to that is love. His response to that is an unbelievably intimate love for the every individual so much that he sent his own son to come to earth to take our punishment for us to defeat death so that anyone can call on him and have that relationship with a holy God. There is nothing, Ephesians 2, there is nothing that we can do to work or earn it. It is only because of what Jesus accomplished that we can have that relationship with God. But not just that, So that when we are covered by Jesus and his holy blood, when God looks at you and me and we have that relationship through Jesus Christ, he sees Jesus' righteousness in us. I know me. The fact that God loves me so much he sent his son and now I am covered by that perfect blood so that when God looks at me, he sees his son's righteousness. That is unbelievable love. And that is available to anyone here. If you have never made that decision, please know, please don't leave here tonight without talking to one of us. Anybody you see in a Love Equip Send t-shirt, we would love to have that conversation with you and answer questions for you of what it means to know Jesus, to know that hope. And then the third thing, and we talked about this next week, and I really hope it continues to be a theme for you, the greatest gift of God is His unfailing love. His unfailing failing love for you and for me. Again, we start off in the psalm and we see somebody beat down in their sin, and maybe that's you this evening. You were feeling beat down. You feel like there is no hope, but then we end concentrating and thinking about God's unfailing love. As human beings, one thing we do regularly is we fail at love. We fail to show love properly. We fail to show love to each other. We fail to show love to our spouses and our family. We fail to show love to our children in the way that God wants us to. God's love is unfailing. Romans 8, 38 and verse 39, uh, Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This unfailing, unseparable love that we can have. And I'll make it very, very clear, this is available to anyone. So if you've never entered into that relationship, 
Our prayer is that today is the day of salvation, that today that you enter into that relationship with Him, but also for you who are the longtime believer and following after Him and it just feels like you can't get it right, my goal is that this is encouraging. This is why we say we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we need Jesus every day. We need that reminder of His unfailing love in our lives. That of all the times we ourselves have felt unfailing love towards us, we need that type of love that only He can provide. That's why we need to rely on Him so heavily. So this week in your community groups, uh, in your homes, uh, in our application, we have these questions for you. Uh, and I pray that you're actually following through these. There's a reason we print them out and hand them to you. Uh, for me, I love notes like this because if they're in my Bible and they fall out, I always am like, oh yeah, I remember this one. I'm not going to read it because it's incredibly convicting, but I remember it. So here's the questions we want you to discuss in your community groups, in your home, uh, with somebody you trust, with an accountability partner. Question number one, uh, and again, this isn't for you just to start shouting out right now when I ask the question. When was a time you were feeling discouraged or convicted and needing God's forgiveness? Uh, when was a time that you really came to an understanding of, oh, I need God's forgiveness? I felt trapped, I felt beaten down, and I felt like there was no hope. Satan had convinced me of this at this time that there was never, I was never coming back from it. Question number two. There's a follow-up question here, so be patient. How much time did you spend meditating on God's character this past week? Again, don't answer out loud. How much set-aside time this past week did you just stop and really focus on an attribute or a characteristic of God that you've seen played out in your life? Uh, we talked about this at the beginning of the series. A lot of times when we come into the holidays, there's people that are just overjoyed and love it, and they're so excited for it, um, and they just have these fond memories, and they can't wait to see their family, and they can't wait to see people they haven't seen in a long time. And then there's the flip side. There's the people who hate this time of year, hate this time of season, dread having to see their family, dread having to see people they haven't seen in a long time. Uh, it's incredibly emotional. Uh, there, there's the in-between where they enjoy the time of season, but this is the first year that they're without fill-in-the-blank. Uh, this is the first time that they'll be around a tree without fill-in-the-blank. Uh, and it could be a, a time of hard memories going through it. And so all of us are in these different places. But David is showing us how do we get through it no matter what? We spend time meditating on God's Word. So if you weren't pleased with your answer to question one, there's question two. How can you plan to spend time meditating on a characteristic of God this week? Again, bring this up in your community groups and have this conversation with your family. Hey, how can we do a better job of instituting this time that we're just going to spend talking about, thinking about, praying about this attribute or characteristic of God? And then number three, write out two steps you are taking to pursue God for the new year. I just realized there's a question mark, so that makes it a question, although it might not sound like one. Write out two steps you are taking to pursue God for the new year. Uh, pray over this. Remember, January 1st is this magical day where everything starts afresh and we will never make those same mistakes again. We're going to start everything new. But it is a time where we have these markers in our life that set a time where now we're like, okay, things have to change now. And so as we approach this new year, what is something that you can tell your uh, community group, your accountability partners, hey, this is something that I want to change this coming year. Let's, how do we do this together? So what are two things that you're going to try to do differently this year? Maybe it's actually setting time aside in your calendar that this is uninterrupted time that I just spend alone with God. 
It's in my calendar. I have an alarm and a reminder set, and I'm going to start doing it this year, but that's up to you. And then the fourth question that isn't there um, on your papers, so you can write this down. There isn't a slide for it either. Sorry. Uh, but what is your focus on this Christmas season? Like, what is your desire? Why are you doing the things that you're doing when you stop and think about it? Oh, we do have a slide. What is your focus on this Christmas season? And is it where it should be? Uh, is it on that stopping to think about what God did when he sent his perfect baby to be born that would eventually be brutally tortured and murdered for your sin? Do we stop and think about uh, why we get to celebrate this time of year? Uh, does it drive us into a deeper relationship with God, or does it drive us into just a busyness that just doesn't seem to end? How are we approaching this time of year so that our focus is on where it needs to be on? I want to close with this quote you have from J. Hampton Keithley. It says, Remembering and keeping one's focus on God's unchangeable character and His eternal faithfulness becomes one of our greatest resources for courage and the faithfulness we need to go on even when things seem their blackest. My prayer this evening is that tonight, one, if you don't know Christ, that today is that day of salvation, that you come and talk to one of us. To, what does that mean to actually enter into that relationship where there are no more doubts of whether I'm in that relationship with God, but now I can know for sure I'm in that relationship with God. Please come and talk to us. If you have that relationship with God, the question is, how do things change now? How am I going to change the things moving forward as I pursue God's will, as I pursue what He has for me, as I need that encouragement during this time of year? Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for who You are. I thank You so much that you tell us repeatedly in your word your different characteristics, your different character, your different names that focus on these things so that we can rely on you. Lord, I'm so thankful you are a faithful God who does not break his promises. I'm so thankful that when you tell us you love us, you understand love better than any human being can. So I pray that as we have your word tonight that it would stick in our hearts, that you would convict us in the areas that we need to be convicted, but Lord, also to encourage us in those times when we are feeling down, that we can go and look to you and see how much you love us and be encouraged by your faithfulness and that you have never broken a promise and you never will. So we thank you, God. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.